Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. This is a parsha you know very well, but it's a, it's a way further in the story than we were last week. Last week, uh, we were in Parshat Va'era, right? And we have uh, God revealing God's self to Moshe a little bit differently than before. And we talked a lot about this new name for God that we see in this Parsha, although some scholars want to argue it's not new. Fine, whatever. Um, according to the text, it's new. Um, so yud Hey vav Hey, right? Uh, and uh, in chapter 7 of Parshat Va'era last week, uh, God is saying to Moshe, like, I'm placing you in the role of God to Pharaoh with your brother Aharon as your prophet. So Moshe becomes the stand-in for God, and Aaron becomes the stand-in for Moshe. Moshe's going to represent the power of the divine before Pharaoh with Aharon to speak for him. Just like, right, usually the prophet Moshe speaks on behalf of God. So we're already way further in that narrative when we open Parshat Bo. All right, so we are at chapter... Oh, wait a minute. All right, before we get all crazy, because uh, y'all are going to get nuts, I know. So what do I have in front of you? The brown book? What is that? The Tanakh. So what is different between a Bible, like just Torah that we're used to, and Tanakh? All the writings. All of the writings that is you have in front of you in the brown, the entire canon, right, of the Hebrew Bible. So beyond the five books, you have the prophets and you have the writings. Okay. Why do I have that out for you? Because what we're going to read, you're, like I said, you're very familiar with. And those of us who grew up at the Blue Maxwell House Haggadah, know this word, parts of this word for word, right? And if you grew up with the four-hour version where we had to read every flippin' word, uh, my grandfather was Orthodox. He would daven the whole thing in Hebrew while we went around reading the entire Haggadah in English. Usually I was sunburned with a scratchy new dress, and I loved every second. I loved every second of it. So, because um, we don't sit around the table and tell stories anymore. And what kid doesn't like to be read a story with their whole family around the table, right? And Mama Faye's cooking on the way. Mm. All right, so, um, so, we, so we, know, we know this story, but what we forget sometimes are the other parts of the Hebrew Bible that we don't reference as frequently, that we're not so familiar with. But in many places in the Hebrew Bible, the parts we are familiar with are referenced. And that's what happens when we look at the Psalms. So I want you to turn to Psalm 78. Okay, we'll come back to it. 1507, just leave it. All right, let's go to Parshat Bo. Let's go to the stuff we know. All right, Parshat Bo, chapter 10. We'll start at verse 1. Why not? Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his courtiers, in order that I may display these my signs among them, and that you may recount in the hearing of your sons and of your sons' sons 
how I made a mockery of the Egyptians, and how I displayed my signs among them, in order that you may know that I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may worship me. For if you refuse to let my people go, tomorrow I will bring locusts on your territory. They shall cover the surface of the land so that no one will be able to see the land. They shall devour the surviving remnant that was left to you after the hail, and they shall eat away all your trees and grow in the field. Uh, that grow in the field. Moreover, they shall fill your palaces and the houses of all your courtiers and of all your Egyptians, something that neither your fathers nor fathers' fathers have seen from the day they appeared on earth to this day. With that, he turned and left Pharaoh's presence. Okay, very dramatic. So they, and some of us remember, right, the movie. <laughs> right? He turns. Very dramatic. All right. What plague are we on here? Eight and nine. So a bow comes in towards the end of the plague narrative. Um, and if you've studied with me this text in former years, these two parshiot, you know that, um, that we break the plague often into groups of three to get nine. So we get three plagues, three plagues, three plagues, and then the coup de gras is on its own, makat dechorot, right? And that there's, there's people who want to link kind of the themes of each of the group of three plagues, like they're related to each other, and then makat dechorot is its own um, huge thing uh, at the end, which of course is what breaks uh, Pharaoh and he right, sends the Israelites out. So that's one way to read it. We're going to talk about another way to read it uh, today when we look through the eyes of the psalmist. But let's just stay with the pshat, with our simple understanding of the text and what's happening. God says to Moshe, right? Bo el paro. What does that mean? Literally. Come. Come unto Pharaoh. Right? So we've preached about this before. Um, that Bo El Paro doesn't make sense anymore in the Hebrew than it does in the English. What does your English say? Go to Pharaoh. <laughs> Don't say go to Pharaoh. Bo El Paro, come unto Pharaoh. What does Rabbi Rami Shapiro do with this? Don't think Pharaoh's out there. Don't think Pharaoh's a king in Egypt, a power outside of you that you're going to go right confront. If you really want to affect this last push towards Geulah, towards redemption, what you have to do as the leader of this people, Moshe, is come unto Pharaoh. Pharaoh's here. So for the first Pharaoh you need to confront is yourself. That is, that is the first one. There's a more radical interpretation that says God is saying, Bo El Paro, come, come. Come not to the Pharaoh into Moshe, but where? In ourself. Go further. Get more radical. Bo. God says Bo El Paro. So if God is reality, capital R, then God contains all of reality. And God is saying, don't think I'm the warm and fuzzy, cotton candy providing deity. Bo el paro, faro, and all those things 
that are a part of Faro are also part of the divine. It's part of reality. Don't split me off. Don't separate me into being all the yummy stuff that you like. God is terrifying. God is all-powerful. And God is going to do some pretty gnarly things. Right? Don't think that being in relationship to me means it's all going to be sunny and nice. Boel paro. Paro's right here. So Christianity creates the concept of the devil to hold space for and contain this darkness. You're saying here that God is big enough and holds this larger thing. What, what is, why does Judaism give and emphasize all of that in God? Why does Judaism give and emphasize all of those elements within the container or whatever that means of God? Okay, you answer me. I don't know. You don't know. Yes, you do. No, I don't. So wh- why, <laughs> why would Judaism not split off all the scary stuff and make it something else. Why, why would Judaism not do that? There's only one God. You, thank you. I knew you knew. So, right, it's because that's a move to split that off, to split out from God anything scary or dark, let's just say evil. To split that off, you now have, you have something outside of God. Judaism doesn't go there. Now, I'm not saying there's one unilateral, not you, there's not one universal Jewish answer to the question, how do we deal with evil in a world if God is all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-good? How do we deal with evil? I'm not, there are reams of commentary and reams of philosophical Jewish books dealing with exactly that question. I'm not suggesting it's simple. What I'm suggesting is Judaism never... Judaism continues to wrestle with it rather than split it off and make it demonic. Now, there is Satan in our texts. The Christians didn't make it up out of nowhere, right? Satan, Satan, is ours. We created the character Satan. The rabbis create that character in the Talmud and in other Midrashic literature, but Satan is not the devil, it, it's sort of late in medieval period it sort of morphs into something demonic like that but Satan is the prosecutor so when Israel right, is being tried before God Satan is the prosecuting angel so Satan brings the case always against Israel right and tempts people like Abraham to, to, to stray right to, to say see look Okay, yeah, God, if you make it easy for him to be a man of faith, okay, but let's do something hard and see what happens. That's how Isaac gets, that's how the command to put Isaac on the altar happens. Satan says to God, oh, Abraham's a man of faith. Because he has everything. Make him suffer and then see what happens to your precious Abraham. But Abraham, of course, passes the test. So this is how the rabbis deal with the testing of Abraham. It's Satan who puts that in motion. So we do have that. Um, later, we, the Kabbalists develop something called the Sitra Achra, the other side. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, you, you, you don't want to see the Sitra Achra. Um, and then another rabbinic concept is Hester Panim, that God, God hides God's face. 
and that's how terrible things happen. So there, there are, you know, there are ways that, that they struggle and wrestle with it, but they never bought into there's a wholly other demonic force outside of the divine. But to be fair, Christians also believe God brought these plagues. So, so it's not like Satan brought them mm-hmm. or the devil. But clearly, Christian theology has to deal with a God who does this also. They just might not go to say that it's evil. Okay, one more hand. Do I see a hand? I just always thought it was the evil within. The what? The time was the evil within. Or evil impulses within. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Works for me. All right. So God says to Moshe, Bo el paro. And here we have to deal with, right, the difficulty of what is this business of hardening the heart of paro. And here, what is the root of the Hebrew word that's used? Hichbadati et libo. So what is that root? What is that word based on, that verb? What has God done to Pharaoh's heart? Hichbadati. Glue or heaviness? Kaveh? Kaveh. Heavy. I have made heavy Paro's heart. We're going to see this word a lot. Right? I mean, the shorish, this root. We're going to see it a lot. Right now, and in all of these texts that are dealing with Egypt and dealing with oppression and dealing with slavery and dealing with suffering, in all of them, kavod, kaved, is about heaviness and it's not a good thing. It is clearly not a good thing. It is only after we are out of Egypt, only after the people are free, only after they are now free to pursue a relationship with the divine, does this change to what? Kavod. Kavod. Which is? Honor. Huh? Honor. Honor. But if we're talking about God, what is it? Glory. Glory. Amen. Or God's presence. Significance. God's kavod. God's presence. God's concentrated essence. So the shift in this root and in this word is happening right here in the book of Exodus. But we're still where Kaved is heavy, hard, stuck. I always think how funny it is that science has kind of come to, you know, um, uh, what do you call it, mirror uh, this text that our hearts actually can get hard. Right? And then if they get hard enough, what happens? You die. Yeah. They, they stop. Yeah. You die. Yes, George. Yeah. But given that the Lord has made the heart hard, he has, he, has the Lord taken away the free will from uh, which is granted uh, somehow? So this is always the big dilemma. This is always the big question when we read this text. Always. Whenever we come to this narrative of hardening the heart, strengthening the heart of Paro, we always have this problem of has God intervened in a way that stops Paro from being able to choose what happens? So there's lots of rabbinic commentary, obviously, um, that goes, and, and the rabbis, they need to defend God here, right? So they write a lot of apologetic texts 
defending God. That God gave Paro a chance over and over, and all God is doing is strengthening the way Paro wants to go. Paro's heart is already moving in this direction, and God strengthens it. Yeah, I mean, you, you, if you're going to apologize for God, you have to go through a lot of that to defend, right? Um, but, but the text seems pretty clear that God is doing this for a reason. What is the reason? To show his strength. To show God's strength. To show God's power. So that this will be you know, talked about for generations to come. That you don't mess with the God of Israel. Meaning, you don't mess with Israel. Well, since this text is written by Israel. <laughs> right? You don't want to mess with you at hey, vav, hey. Which means don't mess with the Jews. All right. It's our fantasy. We get to write it however we want. Didn't work. <laughs> didn't work. All right. Yeah, exactly. All right. <laughs> so I have hardened his heart and the heart of his courtiers in order. Here we go. Here's the reason that I may display my what? All right. What is that? Yes. In Hebrew, my otot. Ot in Hebrew is always a good thing. Ot is always good. Right? Where, where else do we see oat? Tzitzit. What is tzitzit? It's a sign. It's a sign. What it's else? Oat, a burning bush. Is that an oat? I don't think so. I'd have to look, but I don't think, it's, I don't think so. The most famous one. Oti leolam. Shabbat. Shabbat. Oti leolam. It is a sign forever between me, Beni uvein b'nei Yisrael. Oti leolam. Shabbat is a sign between me and Israel forever. This is an oat, right? We wear an oat as a symbol, as a sign that points to our covenantal relationship. Yes, this is Shabbat. Shabbat is a ring, is a sign. It's the wedding ring between God and Israel. God gives Israel Shabbat as an ut, about the eternal love relationship between Israel and its God. Yes, that is an ut in the flesh. The brit, it's an ut of the brit in the flesh. So ut is always good. We can argue, but, but oh, oh, right, <laughs> good for him. Um, oat is always good. A good sign. A good sign. All right. So not from every perspective. <laughs> right? Like, how great an oat is this for the Egyptians? Not good. Not so great, right? So the oat is meant to be for Israel, Jews. And then we apologize because it's not good for the Egyptians. Well, that's another thing. The, the oat is good for us. It's a positive because it's a sign of God's delivering power and a sign of God's strength such that you don't want to mess with Israel. That I may display my oh, tote, my signs, and that you may recount in the hearing of your children and your children's children how I made a mockery of the Egyptians and how I displayed my oats among them in order that you may know that I'm what? yud heh vav This is how you know I am yud heh vav 
through these actions. All right, so Moshe comes to Paro and says, Ko Amar Here's what Yudhei Bafe has to say, right? How long will you refuse to humble yourself? Let my people go that they may worship me. All right. Does God say, let my people go because they shouldn't be enslaved? No. Let my people go because you're making them suffer and people shouldn't suffer. No. Let my people go because they're going to move to Israel and I'm going to make of them a great nation. Does God say that? No. What does God say? Let them go that they may worship me. Okay. Because they couldn't do that in Egypt? Why not? They were not physically free. But if Pharaoh allows them to worship Yehovah, how come they can't just worship Yehovah there? Right? Okay. Doesn't seem to make a lot of sense, but okay. But God promised Abraham. What? There is that. What? That he would make of them a great That that has nothing to do with this. Right? Like, this doesn't say anything about that. Let them go that they may worship me. How come they can't worship right where they are? Maybe they're turned off by being slaves, and so they choose not to. Okay. So let my people go out of the condition in which they are. Because in this condition, they can't really worship me. But, it, but Moshe elsewhere says, we need to make a chag to yud for how long? Three days. So Moshe doesn't say, let, let my people not be slaves anymore because as slaves, they can't worship me. Moshe says three days. All right. So, and if you don't, what's going to happen? Locusts, right? Locusts are going to be everywhere. We know uh, that swarms of locusts destroy the food supply of the place that they... (laughs) The verb is gone. Eat, yeah, land, like what? When you get a really bad invasion of locusts, it destroys the grain, it destroys the food supply. And this happens lots in the Near East. Lots. So this is not unusual. This is, as we talked about before, um, the plagues are not something that would have been unusual. That is not what makes them otot. That is not what makes them signs. That is not what makes them miracles. Perhaps the intensification of them is a little bit of an oat, but what is the main mark that this is a sign that Yudhe Bavhe is at work? Because Moses says, this is going to happen. Because Moshe says, tomorrow this is going to happen if you don't listen, and tomorrow it happens. That's the oat. Not, the miracle is not the locusts. Locusts are like, duh. Locusts destroying fields, duh. That is not a miracle. The miracle is that it happens when Pharaoh refuses God's command. Always, that's the miracle. Okay. So, same, same here, right? And, like, it's terrible and horrible and, right? There you go. All right, so what's the response, Bert? Pharaoh's courtiers said to him, How long shall this one be a snare to us? Let the men go to worship the Lord their God. Are you not aware... Are you not yet aware that Egypt is lost? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to them, 
Go worship the Lord your God. Who are the ones to go? Moses replied, We will all go, young and old. We will go with our sons and daughters, our flocks and herds, for we must observe the Lord's festival. But he said to them, Lord be with you the same as I mean to let your children go with you. Clearly you are bent on mischief. No, you menfolk go and worship the Lord, since that is what you want. And they were expelled from Pharaoh's presence. All right. So Pharaoh's courtiers are starting to turn. We, we often forget this part. That Pharaoh not only doesn't listen to Moshe and Aharon, Pharaoh doesn't listen to his own advisors. Could you imagine that? No. <laughs> Pharaoh ignores his own advisors who are saying, don't do this. The, the, we're at plague eight. They've seen countless examples that this is not a great path to go down. What is it going to take, Pharaoh, for you to get it? Right, that, that this is ensnaring us. This is ensnaring Egypt. So what is so they say let let the men go. Just let them go. What what to go worship? To go worship. Pharaoh, they're not stupid. Don't let them go go. If you keep their children and their women, how far are they gonna go? But the text doesn't say that. Yes, it for sure it does. Yeah. For sure. Yes. So it's interesting that be staying home because they ordinarily don't pray. Uh, say it again. Women are going to be staying home because they don't go to temple or whatever. <laughs> right. So that, even now. So that's that's the claim <clears throat> by Pharaoh, right? What do you need the women for? You, oh, if you're just yes, if you just need a hug, let the the Egyptians are saying so. Let the men go, make their hug, go make your hug. What do you need women for? Right. Is so this a plea for equality. No, Matitum. So, what is it a plea for? Well, Moses says. Is I'm Moshe not... really planning just to go have a hug and then come back? No. no. Yes. Yes, if really what you want is a hug, if really what you're going to be doing is a religious festival, okay, men, go. Have a party, right? But your women and children are staying here. They are being held hostage. Absolutely, absolutely. And we have, we have the proof text right here. Moshe says, we will all go, right? All of us will go young and old, sons and daughters, flocks and herds, all of us to observe the Lord's festival. Does Pharaoh buy that? Absolutely not. Pharaoh's not stupid, right? And that this is tangled English, but the Lord be with you the same as I mean to let your children go. I'm not stupid, Moses, right? No way. Am I letting your kids go? No way, because what? He says it clearly. Right? You are bent on mischief. Right? All right. So you are not telling the truth. If you insist on taking your kids, I mean, and again, the English does not come near the Hebrew, 
What is the Pharaoh's answer in Hebrew? Ra'aneged penechem. Evil is against your faces. Right? You, you are bent on ra'ah. You are bent on evil. And don't think I don't know it. And is Pharaoh wrong? Yeah. <laughs> nope. No. Pharaoh's not wrong, and Pharaoh's not stupid. All right. So Pharaoh says, if you're going to insist on your kids, get out. Because now you're bugging me, right? Because now you're, it's just a bold-faced lie. I can see right through it. Get out. We're done. There's, how am I going to talk with you when you are obviously full of it? Get out. All right. Twelve. Then the Lord said to Moses, Hold out your arm over the land of Egypt for the locusts, that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat up all the grasses in the land, whatever the hail has left. So Moses held out his rod over the land of Egypt, and the Lord drove an east wind over the land all that day and all night. And when morning came, the east wind had brought the locusts. Locusts invaded all the land of Egypt and settled within all the territory of Egypt in a thick mass. Never before had there been so many, nor will there ever be so many again. They hid all the land from view, and the land was darkened, and they ate up all the grasses of the field and all the fruit of the trees which the hail had left, so that nothing green was left of tree or grass of the field in all the land of Egypt. When there's a famine in the ancient Near East, in our text, where does everybody go? Egypt. Egypt. Because Egypt's always got food. Whenever there's a famine, the Israelites go to Egypt. Famine is often caused by a lack of water. (laughs) Which kind of water? Rain. In the ancient Near East, in Israel, rain. Egypt is not dependent on rain. Egypt is dependent on The the Nile. So Egypt's food supply is generally safe. So even with the plague, it's not, it's not that there was no Nile. The plague is that, fine, you have lots of food. What good is it going to do you if the locusts eat it? You don't get to eat it, Egypt, right? So, so here's the plague. The locusts come and they eat absolutely everything. Now there's no food in Egypt, right? So we often think of the bugs as the plague. That's not the plague, The plague is there is now no food supply, right? So even if the locusts go, (laughs) you you still have no food, right? And so you can imagine this is about panic. This is about a crescendo. We're starting to get to the real, you know, top of the panic in Egypt. Now they have no food, so even if Pharaoh manages with his magicians or whatever to get rid of the locusts, mm-hmm. it's too late. Mm-hmm. It, there, the consequences have already been put into effect. Now Egypt is on the brink of starvation. All right. Right? All right, go on to 16. Pharaoh hurriedly summoned Moses and Aaron and said, I stand guilty before the Lord your God and before you. Forgive my offense just this once and plead with the Lord your God that he but removed this death from me. So he left Pharaoh's presence and pleaded with the Lord. The Lord caused a shift to a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and hurled them into the Sea of Reeds. Not a single locust remained in all the territory of Egypt. 
but the Lord stiffened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let the Israelites go. Okay. So by in my hair part only crawl emotion iron. Pharaoh hurries to call Moshe and Aaron, right? Emergency, emergency. The bat phone, right? And what does Paro say to Moshe and to Aaron? Chatati lefanecha. Oh, sorry. Chatati Adonai. right? I have sinned to Yudhevave, your God. Elohechem lachem. I have sinned. Okay, so, so what does that mean, right? He's acknowledging God as his master to some extent. So to some extent, Pharaoh acknowledges that he has wronged Yudhevave, right? But usually, you don't call it a chet. You don't call it a sin unless you somehow buy the, that that's a deity. Or you don't. You don't use the word chet when you do it to somebody else, right? That's a crime or a betrayal. You don't use chet unless you're talking about wronging a god. So Pharaoh acknowledges that Yudhevave is a god, right? That's not a problem for Pharaoh because Pharaoh has a pantheon and everybody knows there's gods everywhere, of course. Every people has their god that protects them. Every place has their god that protects it, right? So it's not a problem for Pharaoh that Yudhevave is a god and now Pharaoh gets it. You have ticked off Yudhevave. That's a chet, all right? So he owns that. I have chetted against Yudhevave, all right? Um, so so I, I'm sorry. Right, I, I want forgiveness for this chet that I've done. So 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, hold out your arm toward the sky that there may be darkness upon the land of Egypt, the darkness that can be touched. Moses held out his arm toward the sky and thick darkness descended <laughs> upon all the land of Egypt for three days. People could not see one another and for three days no one could get up from where he was but all the Israelites enjoyed light in their dwelling. Okay, so a further manifestation of the fact that this is an ut is that although there was this incredibly thick darkness to the point the Egyptians could not move, the Israelites, hayaor b'moshvotechem, there was or, there was light in their homes, right? So now we know, right? It's not just that somehow the sun went into eclipse, because that wouldn't be a big enough oat. It might be pretty big, but, but the fact that there's or, that there's light in the Israelite homes, okay, that is a clear oat that this is about yod heh vav de, like delivering darkness onto the Egyptians. There are reams of commentary written about what is this choshech. Reams. What do you mean they couldn't move? Like, like just because it's dark doesn't mean you can't, I mean, you can can feel your way out of your house fire. right so uh so lots of our commentators say that this is something else this is not regular choshech because if you look at the hebrew what came it's choshech afela so the, they they seize on this word afela what does that mean how does your translation deal with afela Darkness that can be touched. Is that what your translation it says? says the darkness that can yeah. be touched. Very interesting. Same with the, Same with the women's commentary. Yeah. Interesting. Mine says a thick darkness. Right. Yeah, it says that after that. 
Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I see what you're saying. Um, before that. Hashemayim bihi choshech ha'aretz mitraim vayamash choshech. Very interesting. Okay. So, what, so these translations um, already are taking into account some of the, the commentary, right? It's not just darkness. It's darkness that is so thick that you, you could feel it. So it's, it's a darkness that's pressing on the Egyptians, not just a darkness that's an absence of light. Like a fog? So something that has substance to it that prevents them from being able to move about um, as they're used to, but there's ore in the homes of the Israelites. Right? There's no warning. And so, Moses doesn't warn Pharaoh. So, so this, this is part of the, when you look at the map of all the plagues, it's like there's a warning, then Aaron does something, or there's a staff that gets thrown, or there's a thing, or there's a not, or there is, or there's not. So this is, this is part of the the orchestration and the ca- the ca- calligraphy, the choreography of the plagues, and there's lots of study that goes into that. Also, okay. It, all of a sudden, it turns dark, and ostensibly nobody knows what <laughs> what's going on, right? So Pharaoh though panics, right, and says, "Okay, that that's it. Go, you, your women, your children. I don't care. Go, get out." We're at verse 24. Go, get out. But your flocks stay here. So, right? So darkness, how does he know that the, if everybody that he knows is in darkness, how do they know that the Israelites are in light? Maybe the Israel, maybe, I mean, they know the Israelites live over there in that neighborhood. They can't see it. But if there's darkness and somebody else, and there's light coming out of their houses, you can see the light. Who knows? The sign is for Right? This is so Israel knows it's God is on the way. Right? This is, this is a hopeful sign for them that their houses are not dark. Right? This is, and for us, the reader, this is absolutely indication, right, that clearly this is a plague on Egypt, not on the Israelite houses. And the, um, so, so go. Only your flocks will stay. So he's ready to let all of the Israelites go. But leave your flocks. Why? If you leave without your flocks, you can take your peanut butter and jelly sandwich and your little juice box and your, you know, protein bars. That's not going to sustain the people for very long. Right? Okay, go make your festival. Fine. But your flocks... But right. your your wealth, your sustenance, everything stays here. Because you're coming back in three days. Because you're coming back in three days. What do you, you? You'll take a sandwich. You'll take some chips. You'll be fine, right? <laughs> All right. So this is this is Pharaoh's response, right? And Moshe is Moshe going to buy that? No. no. You yourself must provide us with sacrifices and burnt offerings, and we're taking our flocks. Right, but the argument could be we have to make offerings from our flocks. We have to take the flocks. Or how are we going to worship? Worship involves the sacrificing of animals. Duh, Pharaoh. But now Moshe's getting a little cheeky. Moshe's getting a little chutzpah Right? Not only are we taking our flocks, but you're going to provide the sacrifices on top of that. Not a hoof shall remain behind. 
says Moshe. Mexico's right? You gotta love that. Um, and, and because we're gonna take from them, right, to worship um, God. But God stiffens Pharaoh's heart, and Pharaoh would not agree to let them go. Pharaoh says, Be gone from me. Okay, so what does Pharaoh say now? Take care not to see me again. For the moment you look upon my face, you shall die. And Moses says, you have spoken rightly. I shall not see your face again. Right? So this, this moment between Pharaoh and Moshe that I just love. The day you see my face again, you will die. Right? And Moshe says, right? Candy Barta. Right? You're absolutely right. Candy Barta, you spoke absolutely rightly. I will never see your face again. All right. So Moshe has complete trust that they will be delivered. We know the end of the story. Yeah? What comes next? The death of the firstborn. Okay. Look at Psalm 78. Look at verse 44. All right, let me have, we've had Bert read. Let me have a woman read. 44. He turned their rivers into blood. He made their waters undrinkable. He inflicted upon them swarms of insects to devour them, frogs to destroy them. He gave their crops over to grubs, produce to locusts. He killed their vines with hail, their sycamores. Okay, stop, stop, stop. Go on. He gave their beasts over to hail, their cattle to lightning bolts. He inflicted his burning anger upon them, wrath, indignation, trouble, a band of deadly messengers. He cleared a path for his anger. He did not stop short of slaying them, but gave them over to pestilence. He struck every firstborn in Egypt, the first fruits of their vigor in the tents of home. He sent his people moving like sheep, drove them like a flock in the wilderness. He led them in safety. They were unafraid. As for their enemies, the sea covered them. He brought them to his holy realm, the mountain his right hand had acquired. He expelled nations before them, settled the tribes of Israel in their tents, allotting them their portion by the line. Okay. What do we see? Is that the list we're used to? More. Some of them. Some of them. Some of them. Not all of them. Right? Like, what was that? <laughs> right? Do you remember anything about this? Lightning bolts? Do you remember anything about frost? No. And the hail came twice. Right? And we got two references to hail. Um, so, no matter what you do with this list, there is not a way to make it match 
the Exodus text. There just isn't. So some people want to say, okay, remember how we talked about biblical poetry is, is putting two things together, saying it two ways? So even if you want to put grubs and locusts together as two terms for the same plague, right, and that lightning comes with hail, so it's two ways to say the same plague, that's fine, but then you only have seven. Right, no matter what you do to this list, this is not the list we get in Exodus. Right? All right. And tell me, tell me, go back to 44. What's the beginning of verse 44? He turned their rivers into... Okay, go back a sentence before that. He, his wonders in the plain and so on. All right. So, and he displayed his signs in Egypt, his wonders in Okay, the so now we're getting signs and wonders, right? Not the terminology exactly that we have here. Clearly, another tradition about this. Look at Psalm 105. Psalm 105. So you have to go ahead a few psalms. You got it? Yeah. Read it, verse 28, please. Lim. He sent darkness. It was very dark. They did not defy his word. He turned their waters into blood and killed their fish. Their land teemed with frogs, even the rooms of their king. Swarms of insects came at his command, lice throughout their country. He gave them hail for rain and flaming fire in their land. He struck their vines and fig trees, broke down the trees of their country. Locusts came at his command, grasshoppers without number. They devoured every green thing in the land. They consumed the produce of the soil. He struck down every firstborn in the land, the first fruit of their vigor. He led Israel out with silver and gold. None among <coughs> their tribes Okay, so we, we see again another list that now has, right, some other stuff, the flaming fire, the light. So again, it is a similar list. Now these are referred to as otot umoftim. So there are other traditions preserved within the biblical text of the Psalms and remember often the Psalms is some of the oldest material that we have so Older than yes yes so it depends which Psalm but right so but but we tend to think oh if it happens after Deuteronomy in the book <laughs> it's newer material right um, and were the Psalms written by King David in the year 1000 BCE no okay so um so, so we have to look at the Psalms and date those texts, but, but I just want us to get used to, to thinking when we're looking at Psalms, we are often looking at the preserved tradition until the Torah. So, so we have variant traditions of the plagues, what they're called, not just the, the actual plagues, but what they're called. Ototumoftim, right? So um, only in the Torah, here all, all we get is oats. These, you know, so it's... Um, I just want to lift up that, that we, we tend to like open this text and this is what happened. Not even in our own tradition do we have an understanding of this is exactly what happened. 
and in this order. Notice darkness comes first in Psalm 105, right? Darkness, it's choshech then dam. Blood, darkness then blood. So there is not one preserved tradition about what the plagues were and in what order. We have a tradition in Exodus. I have two questions. The traditions that you're speaking of, though, are all from the, the Isra- Israelites' traditions. Yes. Okay, there are no other tribal traditions entering in this series. Wait, 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 wait. What do you mean other tribal traditions? Well, because they're influenced by all the people around them, and we've seen it. There is other- not a text that we have that is not influenced by all the people around us. And the second question, wouldn't, there's a question of translation, as we see all the time. When are the translations updated and made more accurate? Uh, Now you're asking a philosophical question. Now you're going down the rabbit hole of, you used the word accurate. Well, or up to date. Yet still you're saying you're lagging behind. If you're not up to date, then it's not accurate. Right, so what does up to date mean? Now we understand it differently? The people who wrote these translations would argue their translations stand. There is no up to dateness. When, when did they do the translations? Depends which one we're talking about. JPS is an old translation. Okay. How old? I don't know. But Robert Alter has written a new translation. Does that make it more accurate? It makes it up to date if you ask Robert Alter. So it's, it's very subjective. All the translations yeah. are subjective. All translation is interpretation. All translation is interpretation. So why did I seize on that word accurate? Because often I say to you, I don't like the translation because it deviates from the Hebrew too much for me. They, they pick an English idiomatic expression or an idiom that matches what the Hebrew's intention is. And some translators, some translators think that's how you do a good translation. You don't translate from French licking the windows. They spent the day licking the windows. You, that's a bad translation. Because what does licking the windows mean in French? Window shopping. Uh-huh. So, so it would make. Americans would read, they spent the day licking windows and go, what? Like that makes, and then there's no reference later to their tongues being like full of dirt. Like what, why would they do that? Like you would spend all this time misunderstanding what's meant. So a lot of people say, no, you go to, you go to what it means and you translate that into the the host language so that you get an accurate sense of what the Hebrew's trying to convey. But it doesn't always do that. So, so, so sometimes I think that's absolutely right because if you just translate the Hebrew word for word, it doesn't make any sense to English speakers. Mm-hmm. I think too often translators go there. They rush there. Well, what that means is, and so let's use an English word that gets at that. I think, but they, they, they for in my opinion, they go there too quickly. And sometimes I wish they would just put the literal Hebrew, even just in parentheses. Like it means this, yes, we get that. But, but here's what the Hebrew literally says. So that, so that the English speaker can get a sense yes. of, 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 we don't have a word for that in English, but 
gets a deeper sense of what the Hebrew speaker, the, the Hebrew writer is trying to convey, what people would have heard. Um, so that, that's a long way to say. Thank you. So, so that's, that is why you pick a translation very carefully. And you pick a translation based on the translator and what's their philosophy. Mm-hmm. Right? And that should be, and really, if you're going to really do it right, you have several translations, which is why I always ask you to tell me out loud what does your translation say? So that we are constantly hearing that there's different English that people are looking at, right? Um, there's not an authoritative translation. You have, you have to look at lots of translations to kind of understand the range of what the Hebrew is getting at. Okay. Sometimes words don't translate into English easily. All right, I'm going to start without you. So often when we're studying this text and we're getting into the weeds, is that my original? That's my original, thank you. When we're getting into the weeds, which you know I love, as every good nerd loves to be in the weeds of this stuff, we forget to zoom back out. So what is some of our tradition done with this text, because we have to live with some pretty uncomfortable stuff as moderns, don't we? It's like, wait a minute, God hardens Sarah's heart, now there's a famine, now the, and then they're slaying our ch- is this is really, we have to live, and slaying of the firstborn? They're innocent, a lot of them, right? They had nothing to do with anything. Like, we have to sit with a lot of really uncomfortable stuff mm-hmm. as moderns with this story. All right, if you're a fundamentalist, Maybe you can redeem it. I don't know. But for most of us, it's, it's really hard. Well, guess what? It was really hard for the Kabbalists, too. It was really hard for lots of people to sit with this text. So we have some very early movements towards, let's look at what the text actually might be talking about. Like, let's get away from the Malach HaMavet, like coming through the streets and slaying children. What, what might this text, what's the real truth that this text is trying to talk to us about? The Kabbalists already make that move. Already. Of course they're going to sit around and use the Maxwell House Haggadah. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> they're going to read every word of this. Don't get me wrong. But you know, there's a deeper meaning. There's a deeper truth to what, these, what this whole business is talking about. And that's really what we should be focused on. So let's see what it is. Before Moshe and Aaron approached Pharaoh for the eighth time, which is where we are, mm-hmm. God said to them, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants that I might shew these signs before him. Mm-hmm. Gotta love this translation. And that thou mayest tell in the ears of thy son and thy son's son and blah, 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 blah. Okay. What is this? Who is this? Huh? I don't this know. I don't know. Oh. This, I failed to preserve... <laughs> I meant to look up a sentence to see if I can find it online. (laughs) The scale of this passage speaks of the majesty of the creator of the universe and the effect on human history of divine intervention, which can override the world of natural laws. Of course. On the individual level, the effect of such an intrusion into a routine existence usually profoundly shakes the person out of his habits and opens up questions as to the meaning of life. Right? My car, my 
Ford SUV left the road in Duluth because I hit black ice mm -hmm. that I just thought was wet street. My, my Ford Explorer left the road, wound up face down in a ditch. I had been rushing that morning and did not have on my seatbelt. I took out a telephone transformer, like one of those big boxes, took it out. Not a scratch, not a bruise, nothing. That's one of these moments. Right. Do I believe that was divine intervention overriding the laws of nature? Of course not. But yes, it was. <laughs> right? So it's like, right? Of course. How else can you explain it? Right. But it's, so of course not. But, but this is one of those moments. And every minute since then, I've experienced as gravy. Every, no, doesn't mean I don't fetch and whatever. But, but I know somewhere every minute since then is gravy. I should have been dead. I should have been through the windshield. All right. So when that happens, what is the effect on the human, <laughs> right? Um, when that intrudes into our routine existence, it usually profoundly shakes the person out of her habits and opens up questions as to the meaning of life, for sure, right? Anyone on an inner path knows of at least one miracle in their life that has awoken them out of a spiritual sleep. <clears throat> On the scale of a nation, Israel at this moment in the Exodus story is approaching just such a point of awakening. So this is about something that's going to happen to a people, not just a person. We all know those moments that shake us out of our sleepwalking. This is going to happen to a people. When Moses and Aaron, who represent the as yet only developed part of the psyche, Mark, stood before Pharaoh, the animal soul, and repeated the words of God, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go. Pharaoh at first gave ground. He then, on hearing that the demand was still for all the Israelites, reversed his decision and had the brothers driven from his court or his consciousness. Okay, so our tradition's not talking about Pharaoh, about Moses and Aaron standing in the court of the king. <laughs> This is about the, the moment that comes before the huge awakening, right, is that the, the developed part of our psyche, the Moshe Aaron of our psyche, right, has to stand before the animal soul, our Pharaoh, Bo El Paro. Pharaoh's here. Pharaoh's the animal soul, right? And so the higher developed part of our psyche has to stand before the animal part and say, we're not doing this anymore. We're changing it up. And what does the animal soul always want to do? Do it again. No, we're not. <laughs> what are you talking about? Stop eating sugar? Are you crazy? No way. Okay, maybe, because I felt really good that day that I didn't eat it, but no way. No, no sugar ever again? So Pharaoh starts to give ground until the demand is total. And then it's like, oh, no, 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 no. Okay, maybe for, you know, two days, but give up sugar forever? Absolutely not, says the animal <clears throat> part of us. No way. And that reaction has a result, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Locusts fell upon Egypt and began to devour what wealth and resources had been left after the other plagues. Soon there was nothing green in the land. That is, the basic vegetable soul that supports the animal soul was now threatened. 
right? So the, the, the flip doesn't happen. This great moment doesn't happen because it's only Aaron and Moshe. It's only that part of our psyche standing before the animal desires. Think of an elephant and a rider. The, you're standing before the elephant. The elephant's like, yeah, go ahead. You're going to make me move? <laughs> yeah, good luck with that, right? So, um, all right, well, how do you get an elephant to move? Take away its food and offer it a carrot, right? So, so what has to happen for us to move the next level to be ready and open to, for this amazingly huge change to happen? The vegetable stuff that feeds the animal soul is eradicated. This frightened Pharaoh, right? And he began to beg for help. The animal soul becomes quite irrational when faced with extinction, right? What does the elephant do when we're, when we're threatened, right? When we feel threatened, right? I don't know about y'all, but it's not pretty, right? It is not pretty what happens when the elephant starts to feel truly threatened, right? You know, right? It shows its tusks, it flares its, not flares, puts up its trunk, right? It rears, right? It's pretty terrifying, isn't it? And the more threatened the elephant is, the scarier the elephant is, right? Have y'all experienced this ever? I've seen you hungry. (laughs) You've seen me hungry, yes. Now imagine if I felt threatened. (laughs) Right? So, right, we all know these moments when we turn into monsters. We turn into monsters when we feel really, really threatened. And it's not from here. Right? Up here, we, so she looked at me the wrong way. So she had a nasty comment to say about me. What, yeah, but when we feel threatened by that, ho ho. Ho ho. All right. However, he yet again became self assured once the locust had gone and Egypt was no longer threatened. The ninth plague of darkness then descended upon all of Egypt except for the land of Goshen where the Israelites were. Seen Kabbalistically, the locusts represent the destruction of Bina, right? Understanding. Remember we've talked about Bina? Remember when we did the Sfirot? That's where the Kabbalists have to go. They have to. We've talked about the Sfirot. We've named all 10. We've talked about their flavors. We've talked about what they represent. I know you don't remember. It's okay. What, what, what exactly? But, but you know the Kabbalists speak this language, and this is where they have to go. What got destroyed? You shouldn't think it was grass. It was Bina. It was Bina, the life form system of Egypt, while the darkness is the curtailment of Chochmah, of wisdom, the life force itself. Remember when we talked about how the universe comes to existence? Chochmah da'at Bina. Yes? Bina, the mother. Right? Chochmah. Okay. So, Chochmah Bina Da'at, I should say. All right, so Chochmah is the absolute life force. That is what the darkness is curtailing. Thus, during the darkness, no Egyptian stirred for three days. This created a situation of total paralysis for both the vegetable and animal level of Egypt, and so Pharaoh was forced to summon Moshe and tell him to take the Israelites and go worship his God. However, this was on condition that the flocks must be left behind. That is, the natural wealth or vitality of the Israelites was to be retained by Egypt. 
Moses said Israel needed the flocks for food and for sacrifice, but Pharaoh reacted as only the panic-stricken animal soul can by dismissing the whole business from his uncomprehending mind and threatening death if he should ever see Moshe again. Moshe responded, responded gravely saying, indeed, I shall never see your face again. In preparation for the separation of the two nations or levels, so now, right, the Kabbalists are now talking about all of this is happening all within us. In preparation for the separation of the two levels, here represented by the two nations, the divine now instructed Moses to get the Israelites ready. How are they to get ready? They were to approach the Egyptians and ask them for jewelry and gold, that is for the riches of the physical world. Interesting that our spiritual teaching doesn't say if you want a spiritual transformation, go sit on a mountaintop mm-hmm. away from the material. Go- no. Our tradition says if you want to open up a real possibility of a real separation between the icky and the you that's ready to be transformed, go to the spa. <laughs> you, need, you need the riches of the physical world to support the separation of the you that's going to be free. It doesn't, you have to be comfortable. It doesn't mean materialism. It doesn't mean acquisition is the way. Acquisition is, comfort is part of security. If you're worried about you don't have enough or you don't have this, you don't have that, or you're sleeping on the ground, who's ready for spiritual transformation? Right? But at a nice ashram, a little glamping, you know, there's a king-size bed in the tent, you can hear the animals, but you're in your lovely little scented, right, aromatherapy, sweet, right, okay, I can do this, I can camp, look at me, look at me on safari, right, then they were to prepare for the Passover, which was a ritual especially designed to draw all the people or the different aspects of the psyche together into a coordinated whole. And so make this momentous time into a profound initiation. The individual parallel is often the same in that some ritual act is performed to mark a change of state. In some traditions, there are elaborate ceremonies. In others, a simple but potent gesture is made to indicate the passage from bondage to freedom. So we have the Pesach ritual still. So the Israelites, when do they make their first Pesach? In Egypt. They make their first Seder. Bonagi, they had a Seder, right? That's rabbinic, but... But they do the Passover ritual. They do the rite of the Pesach in Egypt. So we tend to think of it as the festival, the ritual, the celebration that marks freedom. Mm. This is saying it's the ritual that prepares them to be able to believe they will leave. It is what prepares them to be ready to take those steps and follow the crazy guy. Mm-hmm. Who says all of this tomorrow will be gone? Like we're, the world is going to completely flip on its head, and Egypt's going to be gone as the greatest empire ever known in the region? You're crazy. Sometimes it takes a ritual. It takes getting all the parts of the psyche lined up, material, well, you know, everything, and then finally you have this ritual that shifts 
and helps us shift into a different state. Sarah? And that was exactly what happened in the Warsaw Ghetto, the night of Pesach, was the night before the uh, revolution took place. The uprising. <laughs> yeah. So this clearly, clearly is related, right? You're, you're a victim, forget slaves. In the Warsaw Ghetto, right? You, we, I don't, we don't even have a word for what they were in the Warsaw Ghetto. But if you're going to start an uprising against the greatest power ever known in this region, ever seen before in this region, you better do Pesach. Preparation. You better prepare. Mm-hmm. And Pesach was the preparation. No matter what happens on the other side of this, no matter what happens tomorrow, we are leaving. Whatever that means. If it means leaving this physical world because there's no way we can beat the Nazis, then that's what it means. But we will no longer be disempowered and defined by the enemy. We won't be defined by people who hate us. We won't allow that to be our reality anymore. And if that means we leave Egypt and we go to the promised land, that's what it means. And if it means we leave the ghetto and we die, that's what it means. But we will not live in this kind of oppression because if we do, we are in fact the oppressor. This is the message of our story. It is the message of every age where we feel we're stuck, where there's no way forward, where there's no way out. We as Americans right now, I think American Jews need this more than ever. Pesach is a little ways off. Not that far, though. So we're going to talk a little bit about this at the you know, women's retreat. We, we need to find ways to give us that strength, to give us that hope, to give us that courage that, yes, however dominant the reality might feel right now, there is the possibility for change. There is the possibility for us to use our power, to organize our psyche, and do whatever we got to do to use our energy and our faith and our strength and our trust and our chutzpah to move us out of stuckness. Mitzarim from the narrows. Don't read Mitzrayim. Don't read Egypt. Read from Tsar. That we can go out from Tsar, from being stuck and narrow and move again into the place of creativity and energy and possibility. Halavai. Zamampi. Shabbat Shalom. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.